I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. It is a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you for welcoming me. Um, I appreciate those were very two kind words uh, that Noel had to say. And um, I don't know how much of it was true, but hopefully what, well, what is true is that I do love Jesus, and I hope my entire goal today is that you, uh, this morning, leave here seeing him clearly and loving him uh, even a little more. Um, I don't get to preach too often. Uh, one thing um, I do love, though, about when I get to preach is that it forces me to study the Bible. Um, I don't know about you. I don't get a chance to study scripture nearly as often as I'd like. Life gets busy. Um, But I find that when I'm forced to, because if I stand up here, I have to have something to say, something to share, that uh, even whatever passage is assigned to me, that I'm like, even if I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I have to say. As soon as I study it and get get into it. I find that God and his word are so rich and something always pops out to me. And that is exactly what has happened uh, this morning. Noel asked me a few months ago if I'd be available to preach this summer and we worked out uh, this Sunday works. And he said, okay, you're gonna be preaching on the parable of the tenants. That's what uh, it's called that we just read. And my first thought was, okay, I'm pretty familiar with that passage. Um, I don't know exactly know what I'm going to do with it because it seems pretty straightforward. Uh, the message of that parable is kind of on the surface. It doesn't seem too complicated, but I'd be happy to tackle it. And God is just amazing. Like His word is incredible because as I studied it, this it happened again as it happens every time. I am now convinced that this parable is like so rich and and a key moment in the story of God. I was actually blown away as I read it. I'm like, this this connects to everything. Uh, And I hope to show you that today. In fact, the story of God is one of my favorite things about the Bible. One of the things that honestly is for me one of my most proofs of God's existence and that the Bible is his word because the Bible, this book that we have here, is not one book. It's actually 66 separate books, a whole library from different genres, written by over 40 authors and editors across a span of over a thousand years in three different languages, in several different cultures, and yet it all tells one continuous story, literally from the first page to the last page. And I don't know how that is possible except by, by God, for it to be divine, that, that God orchestrated it and designed it. There's no way that could have been communicated. And, and so I really hope 
um, that we see the story of what's going on here this morning because I believe that this parable that we read is a key moment in the story of God in the Bible. And it's one where in the typical paradox, the way that God works is both a pronouncement of judgment but one that throws the gates of the kingdom open wide. My hope today is that we see it together and recognize it and respond with hearts of true faith. Sound good? All right, let's dig in together. Now we're gonna get to the parable in a bit, but I wanted to back up since I'm talking about story and set the context. Where are we in the book of Matthew? Where are we in the story of Matthew? Because you guys as a church are in Matthew chapter 21. And as a story, this chapter is where it starts to get really fun because the tension ramps up drastically. Uh, In this chapter, we've got, if this chapter were a roller coaster, um, we've gotten through all of the the beginning part, the minor stuff, and now suddenly the chains click into place and we are heading up the hill of the big hill. All right, we are on the way, this chapter begins the formal conflict with the religious leaders of Israel that are gonna ultimately end in Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Up to this point throughout the whole book, Jesus has had run-ins with the religious leaders before, the, the scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they kind of annoy each other. Um, the religious leaders are annoyed at Jesus by what he's doing. They kind of mutter about the things that he says. But now, for the first time, it's going to level up into direct conflict. And I want you to remember, Matthew is telling a story. All of the gospel writers are. They're taking, tr- they're taking true stories of what Jesus did and said, but they are arranging them carefully in a literary narrative that surrounds a central conflict. And the central conflict of Matthew is one of authority. Who is the rightful king of Israel? Who is the leader of God's people? Who wields authority? If you remember back to the very beginning of Matthew, it began with Jesus' genealogy, tying him back to Abraham and David. And Matthew's purpose in writing this gospel is to show us that Jesus is the true Israel, the true Messiah, the rightful king. But at this point in Israel's history, that authority rests in the hands of these Pharisees, these Sadducees, and other religious leaders. So here in chapter 21, Matthew's story enters its third act where Jesus enters into direct confrontation with these authorities for the first time. And what does that look like? Well, you guys have been talking about it for a couple weeks now. At the beginning of chapter 21, you read about the triumphal entry. And that was a purpose statement of authority. Jesus made a clear shot across the bow of the religious leaders. He rode into Jerusalem, which Jerusalem was the city of David, the city of kings, and, and he was hailed by crowds of adoring people singing praises to God and calling him the son of David. That's not just any name. That is a title for the Messiah, the coming king, the one they were hoping would save them uh, and would bring Israel back to power. And he, he came in like that and then immediately went to the temple and started flipping over the tables and driving out the sellers, and the buyers and sellers and the money changers and getting rid of them, quoting scripture at them. And I know we're kind of familiar with that image. You've probably heard that story before. But I want you to put yourself 
for a second in the shoes of the priests who were there. This buying and selling, it's been going on for years. Under your watch, you've been fine with it. This is how we do it. And now Jesus comes in without asking permission, drives everybody out, and, and he not only says you're doing it wrong, but he says you're doing it wicked. You're doing it evil. The Bible says that, that they were indignant. Of course they were, right? And so when they call him on it, they confront him on it, they point to all the children running around yelling, Hosanna to the son of David, and they ask him, do you hear what they're saying? Do you, is this okay with you? And Jesus, I love it, he does what I, a mic drop on them. He, he, he quotes Psalm 8 to them, which Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. He quotes this to him. It's, what he's saying is, oh, oh, you think you're dealing with someone who's coming in claiming to be the Messiah. No, 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 no. I'm coming. I'm claiming to be God. Jesus came to fight. And this takes place at the temple and with the religious leaders, marks the stakes of this whole section. We're battling over the hearts and soul of God's people, and Jesus pulls no punches. These are his people. These are his sheep, and he fully intends to shred the credibility of these hypocritical shepherds who've been fattening themselves on his flock. He's gonna show them what God is truly like and what true faith looks like. So after that initial encounter, Jesus left the city, he came back the next day, and they were waiting for him. This is what Noel preached on last week. They challenged his authority and asking, what right do you have to do this? Who gave you that right? And Jesus responds, he says, kind of like, why is this a question? John told you exactly who I am. So was John from God or was he just making this up? And they don't answer. The religious leaders, they mutter, they avoid the question, they show themselves to be cowards and equivocators. So Jesus follows up with the parable of the two sons. It opens the question of what is true faith? True faith, according to Jesus, is both orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right action. In fact, for Matthew, really, right action or right response is far more indicative of what true faith is. And this is where he turns it on the religious leaders. He says, you have right beliefs. You know the Bible, you know what God says, but what you lack is the right response to God. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, they may not know the right things to do or say, but when they hear God's call, they know how to respond, and you don't. In fact, you have exactly the wrong response. So what is that wrong response to God's call? That's what Jesus shows them in today's parable. So let's read that again. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. 
They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. It's a powerful story. And in many ways, the message is right there on the surface. So I'm not going to rob the story of its power by breaking it down line by line. Instead, I, I want to make a few observations, things I want to make sure we notice. First, it's obvious in the characters of the parable that the landowner is meant to represent God. And I want you to notice God's character. Notice the goodness of God. Notice his generosity and care. He didn't just buy the land and say, hey, okay, build something on it and pay me for it. He could have. He would have owned the land and they would have been producing something. Uh, he had that right. But no, he prepared the place for his tenants. He planted the vineyard so it was ready to go and bear much fruit. He built a wall and a watchtower so those who lived and worked on the land would be safe and their livelihood would be protected from thieves. He dug a wine press so the harvest could be processed right there and sold for more money. He generously prepared the place for them to flourish. And then notice his patience. He would have had every right to evict those tenants and judge them after they treated his first set of servants poorly. In fact, it would have been wiser to do that. But he gave them more chances. He delayed. You can see his patience and his hope for the tenants and the way he says, maybe they'll respect my son. You can see the beautiful, gracious naivety of God as we were, th were thinking, don't be a fool. Don't do that. But God is extravagantly patient to the point even of seeming foolishness. He is slow to anger. Notice the long-suffering love of God in this parable. And with that in mind, I also want you to notice the righteous justice of God. The judgment that comes at the end of the story is not arbitrary or harsh. It is fully deserved. The landowner wasn't being oppressive or unfair by expecting a portion of the harvest for himself. It was his land. That's how a rental economy works. 
And the tenants didn't just reject his land, the landowner and refuse to pay him, though. They beat and shamed and murdered his servants. They beat and shamed and murdered his son. The behavior of the tenants in this parable is outrageous. We are meant to feel the injustice of it. When we hear the story, it provokes our righteous indignation. We demand justice. Notice that the, the original hearers did too. They were caught up in the story just like we were. Jesus ends by asking, when the landowner comes back, what do you think he'll do to these farmers? And the religious leaders, the ones who are in conflict with Jesus, but still they couldn't help themselves, right? They, they're practically leaping out of their seats. He will utterly destroy those wretches. He'll take everything away from them and give it to those who will give what he is owed. They recognize the justice of the judgment of God. Which leads me into the final thing to notice. This parable here is an odd one. It is both a history and a prophecy. This parable looks backward and forward. And the moment where Jesus is physically telling the story to them actually sits right in the middle of the story. Literally, they are sitting in, in between verses 37 and 38. Up until that point, the landowner's preparation of the vineyard, the renting it out, the sending and killing of the servants, guys, that's a great summary of the Old Testament in a nutshell. God prepared a place for his chosen people. He rescued them from slavery, provided for them, established them in a fertile land, protected them. But over and over again, they turned from him and rejected his ways. They wouldn't follow his laws. They would oppress the poor, steal, fight, sacrifice their children to other gods. And this is not an original thought. This is not new news even for Israel. In fact, Jesus chose the imagery in this parable specifically because it would have been very familiar to them. Look at what the prophet Isaiah had said to Israel 700 years earlier. Isaiah said, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. I guess we don't have the slide up, but anyway. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Does that sound familiar? And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Over and over again, God would send his prophets like Isaiah to warn his people and call them back to him in his ways and they would be rejected, shamed, and often murdered. They have murdered the servants of the Lord and now the son is here. The prophets, the servants are done and God has sent his own son into the world to call his people back to him. And this is where the parable switches tragically from history into prophecy. Jesus predicts exactly what is about to happen to him. He too will be rejected. 
he will be cast outside the camp and he will be killed. In the story, in the parable, this is the wickedest act that the tenants do. And in history, it is the greatest evil of humanity. But this isn't the only prophecy in the passage. After the religious leaders respond to Jesus' question with their own judgment, Jesus, he confirms their intuition by quoting Psalm 118 and telling them directly, this is you. You are the tenants in this story. And just like you predicted the landowner would return, destroy these vicious men and turn the vineyard over to others, that is happening right now. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That line, that is a crux moment. If this gospel were an action movie, I like to imagine that this would be the moment in the fierce, like the climactic final battle where everything is crazy, it's looking bad, but suddenly the hero steps back and pulls something out. And suddenly maybe the, the, it goes to slow motion. Maybe there's a bass drop, like Suddenly everyone sees what the hero has had planned all along. Everyone knows what is going to happen. Something major is about to shift. And that's what's happening here. This moment, this is the cleaving of the testaments. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant on one side, the New Covenant on the other. B.C. over here, A.D. over here. Now, the actual historical turning point would come a week after this story in the actual death and resurrection of Jesus. But this parable is the first time in the story of God where we see this turn come rising over the horizon as a looming event. This, is the, this parable is kind of the press conference where God announces that he is officially moving from phase one of his plan to phase two. Up until now, the whole story of God has been focused on Israel's role in redemptive history. And Matthew's focus has been there too. But that's all about to change. This story serves as the parable version of the writing on the wall in Daniel 5. If you know your Bible, you know that this is huge. If you don't know the Bible very well, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. You're in a great place. Uh, But let me show you what I mean with a quick overview of what is this story from beginning to end of the Bible? What is going on? Much like the landowner in the parable, in the beginning, God created a world of abundance and provision. He created mankind in his own image to rule and reign over this creation on his behalf and in relationship with him. Heaven and earth were meant to be united. But like the wicked tenants, mankind rebelled, rejecting God's rule for their own authority to decide between good and evil. As a result, violence and oppression and death spread. The book of Genesis says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And man, you don't have to spend too much time looking at the news or social media to see that things haven't changed much since Genesis. But the good news is God didn't abandon us to our destruction. Out of this mess, God chose one man, Abraham, 
to be his representative in the world. You see, God had promised that there would come a seed who would one, a seed of a woman who would one day crush evil. And this man, Abraham, old and childless as he was, would be the one with his wife Sarah to carry that seed. God promised to give him a son. Not only that, God made a covenant with Abraham that he would make his children into a great nation. God would bless them, give them a land, and through them, he would bless the nations of the world. Through Abraham's family, the whole world would be blessed. And Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel. And God did what he said. Years later, he rescued his people Israel from slavery out of Egypt. He led them mightily through the wilderness into the promised land of Canaan. He led them in victory there and established them in abundance. And along the way, God continued to make covenants with Israel. At Mount Sinai, he gave Israel his law, which was his description of how life in his creation was meant to work with justice and righteousness. And he promised that if Israel kept his law, he would bless them forever. He then ma- he made a covenant with Israel's greatest king, David, and promised that he would establish David's throne forever. And God kept his side. But the problem is that Israel didn't keep God's law. Instead, Israel again acted like the tenants in the parable, despite God's repeated warnings and patience and judgment. The problem is that David's descendants didn't follow God and instead did what was right in their own eyes. And the kingdom of Israel was fractured and taken into captivity again. So much about that at the time of Jesus' life, when Jesus was walking the earth, it was an open question for the Jewish people of what God was doing or how he was going to fulfill his promises. They were a conquered people with no king. And this is the key to what Matthew has been trying to show his readers in this whole book, okay? So we're, this whole book that we've been reading, he's trying to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's purpose in God's plan. Jesus was the promised seed. Jesus was descended directly from Abraham. So he was Jewish, he was a, and he was a faithful Jew. He was faithful Uh, unlike the nation as a whole. He knew God and his law and he kept it perfectly. And therefore he was worthy of the blessings of the covenant. Jesus was descended from David and therefore worthy of the kingly authority. And what Matthew is showing us in this parable is that the sun has set on the nation of Israel's time as the people of God. Their role was to witness God on earth and to bear forth the promised seed that would rescue mankind. And with Jesus' arrival, they had done that. Jesus fulfilled Israel's role, and the plan of God was officially moving from phase one into phase two, from Israel into the church age, where Jesus is the head, and his body is made up of not only an ethnic people, but a redeemed people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. He was going to bless the world. The authority had shifted. This is key. By the way, I do need to unfortunately pause here uh, for a second because it's hard to teach this truth well. And sadly, this transition in the Bible from Israel to the church has been an excuse used throughout the centuries for terrible acts of hatred and anti-Semitism. 
And unfortunately, honestly, I've seen this anti-Semitism rearing its head even today in several particularly online communities that claim to be Christian. And I want to be clear, unequivocally clear, that racism of any type, but specifically anti-Semitism, is not Christian. Antichrist and it has no basis in the New Testament. After all, Israel was not neglected in this transition. While there ended up being a parting of the ways between the Jews who accepted Jesus as Israel's Messiah and those who didn't, Jesus himself was Jewish. All of his disciples were Jewish. Most of the first Christians were Jews. In fact, the entire book of Acts is actually the story of the early Jewish Christians awakening to the fact that God's mercy and salvation were extending to the nations that he was actually fulfilling the end goal of his original adoption of the Jewish people. And much of the conflict in the book of Acts is actually them grappling with what that looks like and how to bring Gentiles, non-Jews, into the church. And even beyond that, regarding Jewish people in the nation of Israel, well, anyway, Jewish people, the New Testament is certain that Israel as God's people has not ended either. It's, it's not clearly defined exactly what that means or looks like, and certainly the Bible is clear that Jesus' life and death and resurrection are the only hope for salvation. But Romans 9 through 11, in the book of Revelation at least, are very certain that in some way, God is not done with his people. And I would simply add that, this is a personal observation, man, that I believe the continued presence and flourishing of the Jewish people despite millennia of hatred and focused demonic efforts to exterminate them, is evidence of God's continued care. If you can count on anything from the God we see throughout the whole Bible, it is his steadfast love and his utterly astounding mercy. So with that side note said, I just here we see that Jesus is telling Israel's leaders in this parable that something significant was shifting. Their continued rejection of God's rightful authority had led to judgment, and God was taking the kingdom from them and instead would be giving it to a people who would produce its fruit. This parable was a history and a prophecy. It's a massive moment in the story of the Bible. So, all I said. What does this parable, this scene, what does it have to do with us today? How does it affect me, a Jesus follower, in Exeter here in 2023? That is a great question. And honestly, the reason that I've spent so long focusing on the context and the role this scene plays, both in the story of the book of Matthew and the story of God, is that, that I think its primary importance, this parable's primary importance, is not in application as we typically think of it, but more is instead in showing us who Jesus is, showing us what God is doing in this grand story that we are all living in, that we are all a part of. As we saw in the text, the parable is not primarily about instruction or changing behavior, but really primarily it's an announcement of what was happening. And so instead of thinking of this in terms of application, I prefer thinking in terms of response. You don't apply an announcement, you respond to it. And I believe there are two appropriate responses for us today. The first is to marvel. Be amazed at the abundant generosity of God. 
Tremble at the terrible justice that the God of the universe brings on all who mock his authority and imagine that he doesn't see. Sit in wonder at his long patience despite our wickedness. Stand in awe of the surprising turn of events that open up the doors of God's vineyard to us who had no right to it. Most of us here are not Jewish. We're Gentiles. We were not part of God's people and we had no inheritance in his promises. Our ancestors aren't judged in this parable not because we were better but because we were so far from God that it was never even a, there's no expectation that we would know him. And yet God, in his marvelous grace, used this moment of judgment on his own people to open a way for us all. The worst moment of the world, the murder of God himself, became the key that unlocked the gates of death and hell for the whole world. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. The proper response to this is worship. It's gratitude and joy and praise to the one who is slain on our behalf. In a few minutes, we're going to close with communion and worship. Let's bring our reflection on this story into that. Before we do, there, there's another response that's appropriate as well. And that's a response of holy fear and examination. Judgment is a terrible thing. And righteous judgment is more terrible still. This parable was a declaration of the end of God's long patience and his punishment of evil. And so even as it was primarily, it was a warning to Israel's leaders, it still contains some of its warning for us today. Just because God judged Israel and opened the door for non-Jewish peoples to enter in does not mean that he will not likewise judge us if we follow in the footsteps of these tenants. In fact, addressing this exact situation in Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says, they, the Jews, were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, Gentiles, stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you too continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The way to stay connected to the root is to not be like the wicked tenants, but to be tenants who will produce his fruit. Tenants with true faith. True faith is faith that recognizes God's authority and gives him the recognition and obedience he deserves. If we don't produce his fruit, we too will be cut off. But if we do produce his fruit and humbly offer it to our generous landowner, he gives us life to the full. And as we close, I want to bring us to the one image from the passage that we haven't touched on yet. Jesus' description of himself as the cornerstone. He quotes from Psalm 118 and says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This stone is a stone of judgment. Those that reject it will trip over it and fall. Those that stand up against it will be crushed. 
But this stone is also marvelous. There's another thing you can do with a stone other than trip or be crushed. You can, be, you can build on it. And that's the heart of Paul's beautiful words of recon, reconciliation in Ephesians 2. Here in Ephesians 2, he's speaking to a church that bridged the old and the new, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's build together, church. In his death, in his willingness to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus Christ has flung open the doors of the vineyard and loudly invited everyone from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. You and I, you don't need to plant your own vineyard. You don't need to build your own wall or construct your own wine press. You don't need to clean up yourself up first. All you need to do is come to him with true faith that joyfully gives the landowner what is his, and you will drink freely from the river of life. Together, we are the temple of the living God built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Let's do what we were meant to do and worship him together, freely offering the fruit of the harvest to our good God. We're so glad you joined us, but don't forget to stay connected, either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.